And welcome to another edition of Racing Through Time NASCAR podcast covering the 1986 NASCAR Winston Cup season. Ricky Wittenberg along with Andy Waddell. And Andy, how is it going this week? Oh, it's going good. I'm finding a frog hair and we're ready to get this started. All right. So this week we are going to be covering briefly, we're just going to glow, blow over the Rockingham race because there's not very good uh, quality video out there. And what's out there is only about 40 minutes worth of the whole race. So we're going to kind of talk about Rockingham briefly and then go right into the Atlanta race. You can follow this show on Twitter at OPR Word for all your motorsports news and for the podcast. We are on Apple, iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud. So follow the show, follow us on Facebook at Racing Through Time. We have a group just now starting, so check us out there. And uh, we're coming off of the big Richmond race, Andy, and there was a lot to unpack with the Richmond race coming into Rockingham. We got some articles to talk about, but that I'm still thinking that um, that Richmond race is going to be pretty hard to top this year. Oh, definitely, especially with, I mean, it was a good race from top to bottom, but the ending just sealed it as probably one of the best races you'll ever see. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, what we're going to do, um, we'll go over a couple articles here real quick. Earnhardt and Waltrip, um, after the Richmond race, obviously they're not going to be, they're not real happy with each other. So the first article uh, today we're going to, talk about and go over is the Waltrip and Earnhardt article from, let's see, what is this? The Morning Call, Allentown, Pennsylvania. This from Friday, February the 28th, 1986, by Mike Harris of the Associated Press. Dale Earnhardt and Daryl Waltrip both want to get back to racing and put the controversy of last Sunday's Richmond race to rest, but neither is totally forgiving the other for their crashes into the guardrail. Both drivers spoke about the incident yesterday at North Carolina Motor Speedway as preparations began for Sunday's Goodwrench 500. Earnhardt, though he admits to causing the accident in which both he and Waltrip slammed into the wall while battling for the lead just three laps prior to the end of the race, is not ready to accept the $5,000 fine and season-long probation levied against him by NASCAR. The sanctioning organization, in its ruling on Monday, said that Earnhardt, crossed the fine line between racing and reckless driving. But Earnhardt, who has also been told he must post a $10,000 bond, which would be forfeited if he is found guilty of reckless driving again this season, has appealed NASCAR's decision. The hearing has been set for Monday at Charlotte, North Carolina. In every wreck, somebody is at fault, said Earnhardt, the 1980 Winston Cup champion. When we went down the backstretch, my intention was to get underneath Daryl and be alongside him in the turn. The wreck was caused by an error in my judgment and driving skills. It surely wasn't intentional. Waltrip, a three-time champion, has got, had gotten past Earnhardt in the fender-bending race just moments earlier, and Earnhardt was attempting to get back past the defending Winston Cup champion when his left front fender tagged Waltrip's right rear, sending both spinning into the wall. Waltrip's car was damaged worse than Earnhardt's, and Earnhardt was back in line under caution when he came past the slow-moving Waltrip the next time around the half-mile oval. Waltrip appeared to turn right directly into Earnhardt's car, sending both again into the wall. 
That's what upsets me, says Earnhardt, who wound up third. They penalize me for one accident, and nothing is said when that second accident happens. I don't believe I'd get between the car I just hit and the guardrail if it had been me, joked Waltrip, who wound up fifth. But really and honestly, it wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to hit him. I was driving a car with four flat tires and all kinds of damage, and I was just trying to get the car across the finish line. Waltrip, known as one of the top short track drivers of all time, said there had been entirely too much fender banging going on in NASCAR in the last year or two. He didn't go as far as to name Earnhardt as the worst culprit, but Waltrip said, It's not between Dell and me. We had gotten to make a joke about of it out of it and it had gotten entirely out of hand. I don't think NASCAR find Dell Earnhardt for what he did at Richmond. I think they find him for what he'd been doing for quite a while. Waltrip said that he has no animosity towards Earnhardt. If that was the last race we were going to have, I'd be real upset, but it's not. We both have good cars and both of us drive up front. It's inevitable that somebody's going to pass somebody else eventually. I don't know how he feels, says Waltrip, but the most important thing when I'm on a racetrack is to win races. I'm not thinking about wrecking somebody. I've won enough races without running over people. I feel I can run with the best of them. Earnhardt says that it won't affect my racing at all. I'm a competitor. Richard Childress has a million-dollar race team and a million-dollar sponsor. I've got a responsibility to them. I have to keep that in mind when I'm out on the track. I'm a professional race driver. I want to be racing for a long time. I'm not going to intentionally wreck nobody. All right, Andy. So there's two sides of a coin from the fallout on Richmond. Uh, what do you take? What do you make of that? Well, see, this article proves that Daryl Walter knows he was at a fault and he is accepting responsibility for this fault. And Earnhardt is completely blameless because he is a saint that should be revered. And now what do you actually think? Well, actually, yeah, that that was kind of weird because everybody that saw it knows Earnhardt was at fault on that one, whether it was intentional, whether he did it on accident, misjudgment, whatever. It was, you know, yeah, it was a fault. But even more, if a driver wants to do something like that, they would probably sit him for two or three races. And even though it was a lot of money back in, they only pined him, what, $5,000 in probation for the rest of the year so. Just different times, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, I do think when we talked about that last week, I hadn't read ahead, Earnhardt basically said that, at least on paper, he said that he was doing what I thought he was doing, and he says that he made that mistake, which I almost can believe. I just don't see how anybody would turn somebody head on into the wall like that and wreck their self. So I just think he misjudged it that bad. I don't know how, but. Um, I mean, everybody has, well, everybody has their moment where they make a mistake. It's, it's hard to think that Dale Earnhardt made a mistake at some point, but they all make mistakes. I think he just mistimed it. Well, after uh, you mentioned that last week, I actually went back and watched it again. And like you say, you can see, I don't know if Walter slowed more than he anticipated or what, but he did just misjudge it. Yeah. So that article from, uh, from Walter Earnhardt's perspective after that. And then we also get an article. I'm not sure if this is after. Yeah, this will be after the um, 
the Rockingham race. So we'll real quickly, let's talk about Rockingham. It was race number three, the Goodwrench 500. There's only a 40 some minute clip out there on YouTube. So it's, it's really hard to review an entire race by watching 40 minutes. I watched it. There wasn't a lot you can get out of it. Um, Terry Labonte basically just stomped the field. He led 306 out of 492 laps from the pole. Uh, Harry Gant finished second. Richard Petty led 59 laps, finishes third. They were the only cars on the lead lap. Morgan Shepard, Darrell Waltrip round out the top five. Kel Yarborough, Bill Elliott, Dell Earnhardt, Neil Bonnet, and Lake Speed rounded out the top ten. So, Andy, not a lot we can take away from that race. I mean, I guess, it, honestly, if there's going to be a race that uh, – we really can't review seeing a race where somebody leads almost the entire race and it didn't look like a lot happened. That's probably not a bad one we had to miss. Yeah, because most of the time when there's only, what, three three cars on the lead lap, it's not going to be that exciting of a race. So I don't think we missed much there. Yeah, maybe not. So after this week, we do have another article um, where NASCAR cuts Dale Earnhardt's fine this from the Daily Advertiser, Lafayette, Louisiana, Wednesday, March the 5th, 1986. It's actually probably an AP article. This is just where I caught it from. NASCAR officials have canceled driver Dale Earnhardt's one-year probation, cut his $5,000 fine to $3,000 after an appeal over Earnhardt's collision in Richmond with Darrell Waltrip. Earnhardt said Monday that he's still not satisfied with the penalties against him and is demanding complete vindication. NASCAR still says I'm guilty while I insist I'm innocent. I'm considering appealing this further. And basically then it just rehashes everything we've talked about. But at the end of the day, I don't think, I don't think they did appeal this. I think they just kind of took their lumps and went on. So there's that. And then we also have an article where Ricky Rudd says that Fords need some help. This article from the Atlanta Constitution, Thursday, March the 13th, 1986, uh, by Tom McAllister, staff writer. Ricky Rudd isn't one to panic or give up on a year before it's begun, but the driver of Bud Moore's Motorcraft Thunderbird says it's time for NASCAR to dip again into its bin of rule changes and do something to help the Fords or face a General Motors runaway of the 1986 Winston Cup season. After only three races, the Chevrolets, Buicks, and Oldsmobiles have made also rands of the Fords. Rudd attributes the success of Chevrolet to NASCAR's approval of the body style changes in the GM products. That, coupled with carburetor restrictions placed on all cars in the middle of last season, has had a killing effect on the efforts of Rudd, Bill Elliott, Kyle Petty, and Kel Yarborough. Their cars have struggled to keep up and more often than not have failed. In the Daytona 500, GM cars finished 1-10 through 10 after a wreck eliminated Elliott and Yarborough, who weren't running very well anyway. In the Miller 400 at Richmond, they were running one through four with three laps left when the leaders all got took out, allowing Kyle Petty to win under caution. In Rockingham, GM finishes one through five. Of the 1,092 laps completed this year, Fords have led seven, four of them under yellow. To take it a step further, at both Daytona and Rockingham, the Fords were clocked at close to their same speeds of a year ago, 
while the GM cars were running almost two miles an hour faster and able to take the short way around in the low groove, courtesy of improved aerodynamics. If that's not proof of how much better the GM cars, I don't know what might be, said Rudd. And if we Fords don't run up front Sunday, we're in big trouble. It's time for NASCAR to take a look at our situation. We need help. Rudd Sunday is the running of the Motorcraft 500 at Atlanta, which historically has been a Ford track. Elliott won two races at Atlanta last year, and his record 11 victories and $2.5 million in earnings for 1985 brought on protests from GM drivers. Ford's advantage wasn't as much as advertised, said Rudd. Not enough to merit what NASCAR gave the GM teams. It was mostly a Bill Elliott year, not a Ford year. Ford used it to good advantage in advertising, but if you look at the records, the rest of us weren't dominating anything. And Rudd wasn't heartened by the news that in testing last week, Goodwrench winner Terry Labonte and Buddy Baker in Oldsmobiles and Earnhardt and Sterling Marlin in Chevys were running laps close to 170, the track record, while Elliott's best was 169. The big difference, Rudd said, is they're getting more downforce on the rear, enabling them to start the race with the spoiler laid back. They can start the race a second faster than the Fords. The new slope-backed windows has allowed them to run as well in the corners as Bill did last year. That was his big advantage. Now they're outrunning him in the corners. Still, Rudd isn't conceding. We've got a good race car, and maybe Atlanta will be the race that turns it around for us. Andy. Uh, 1986. Uh, now today in NASCAR, maybe there's some kind of a cloak on that or all the cars are basically the same. You don't really hear them complain too much about one manufacturer over the other, but there was a lot of politicking back, back in the day on, on trying to get rules advantages. Oh yeah. Well, you had rules advantages. You had the manufacturers. They want their cars to be up front and, you know, leading all the time. So they will go out of their way, even if they have to make just special edition cars to be able to run in the race. And a lot of this, you got, you kind of have to feel sorry for NASCAR a little bit because in the back of their mind, they have to be thinking, well, are they sandbagging so they can have an advantage later on? Are they really that far behind? What does the wind tunnel say? And they'd have to go through a bunch of tests just to figure out what could make it more fair. Uh, if you look at that number, though, 1,092 laps, Ford had led seven, four of them under yellow. That, I don't know if, I don't think you can say that's sandbagging. I think that the Chevrolets, had, well, the GMs had caught on and and figured out what Bill Elliott done in 1985. And, and Ricky Rudd makes a really good point. It wasn't the Fords that dominated everybody. It was Bill Elliott's Ford that dominated everybody. So that kind of puts these other Fords behind the eight ball. Yeah, it's like uh, going to a three-point contest and then handcuffing you because you got Steph Curry on your team. Yeah, I mean, it's um, something like that. So, rule changes, uh, Ricky Red looking for rule changes. And now, Willie T. Ribs was supposed to run the Atlanta race, and his car wasn't ready. So, there had been a lot of talk and... Uh, scuttlebutt in the garage about Willie T. Ribs coming into NASCAR. And he was kind of brash and uh, very outspoken about being an African-American driver in NASCAR. So there was this really interesting article I found from uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 
back in uh, right before the Atlanta race about uh, Wendell Scott and Ed Hinton wrote a great article and I'm going to read most of it here. It is, it is pretty long, but I think it's definitely worth uh, bringing out because it shows what, what Wendell Scott thinks about the possibility of another black driver in NASCAR. He as a man can weep and still talk. And then just as suddenly he gathered himself and returned to repairing an engine in a broken down garage piled nearly to the ceiling with tools and auto parts. You ever laugh to keep from crying, he said. That's where I've been many a time. Heavy hands wiped at the corners of eyes still blue in a black man's face. He gazed back into nothingness, back into a quarter century ago, back in those days when he tried to make a living on the NASCAR circuit in the South of separate drinking fountains, segregated grandstands, and the back of the bus. I wonder, he said, if Willie T. Ribs walked into stock car racing under those circumstances, if he would handle it that well. Wendell Scott turned 65 this summer, the same summer that Willie T. Ribs promises to become the first black driver ever to hit the NASCAR circuit with a fighting chance, good financial and mechanical backing, and the acceptance that has grown out of a quarter century of social change. But Willie T. Ribs, who was to make his debut Sunday in the Motorcraft 500 at Atlanta International Raceway, can in no way claim to be the first black driver in stock car racing. Wendell Scott was the first, and since Ribs was unable to qualify for Sunday's race because his car was not ready in time, he remains the only black driver ever to compete regularly in NASCAR. A lot different for him, Ribs, coming into 86, said Scott, I started racing in 49. In the little garage where he works 12 to 16 hours a day repairing passenger cars for a living, Wendell Scott has been relating his saga stoically until he got the part about that day at Darlington in 1962. When they finally let me run at Darlington and the race was over, there was a line of drivers at the booth behind the garage area. It was the guys who were racing more or less in my bracket, the ones with no financial backing. Bob Colvin, then president at Darlington Raceway, was handing out, oh, $150 or $200 a piece to these guys to get them back home. Colvin would give them their money and have them sign their name for it. I went over and got in line. When my turn came at the window, Bob Colvin looked up and said, Negro, you better get your ass back up that road. I walked away. In 1962, in an infield sea of white in a segregated South Carolina, what had gone through his mind as he walked away. Now, 24 years later, with Bob Colvin 20 years dead, Wendell Scott tapped with a wrench on the engine that he was repairing. He tapped harder and tapped faster. He stared. He choked, and then he wept. Just determination, he said in a broken voice. Racing was something that I wanted to do, and I wasn't going to let nothing stop me. I kept hoping for the day, hoping for the day, and then it turned out like it did. I raced for 30 years, and I've got nothing to show for it. 
He composed himself, stared at the engine, and got up and fumbled through a mountain of tools. I'm working too much. I know that. I'm going to slow down someday. But working keeps my mind off of things. There is no phone in the garage. I wouldn't have one. If I had a phone, people would be calling me. Everybody around here knows where Wendell Scott's place is. They want me to work on their cars. They come by. A few blocks away stood his modest home of 40 years, the one that I built with liquor money from moonshine hauling days. At the house, his wife of 42 years, Mary, slept at midday, having worked the graveyard shift at a nursing home. Surrounding the garage in a briar-smothered junkyard, a resting place for several of his old race cars, including his crushed pride and joy, a Ford demolished at Talladega in 1973 in a wreck which finished him on the Grand National Circuit. Not since 73 has a black driver ventured into the realm of the good old boys. Now comes Willie T. Ribs, a brash young Californian who Wendell Scott has never met. He's definitely going to encounter some problems he's not expecting, Scott said. I don't say for him to go out there and tuck his tail. But I think that if he don't change his attitude, outspoken and flamboyant, from what I've heard about him, he's going to have a rough road to travel. I don't think anybody's going to go out and wreck him, but if he's too sensitive, if he takes some things the wrong way, some of them may pick on him. And there's some of them that would get him no matter what the consequences are to them. The main thing is, he's coming from a road racing, where Ribs is a proven winner, into a 3,700-pound stock car on oval tracks. And buddy, there's a whole lot of difference. He was in a form of racing where he's just happened to be better than the others. Now he's coming into NASCAR, where there's a lot of great drivers. If he'd come along when I did, with the attitude he's got now, he couldn't have made it. I didn't let him run over me so much, but I was low-key. I don't know how he feels about me, but I read somewhere where he said he wouldn't race like I did, hand to mouth. Well, if I hadn't raced like I did, I don't feel like he'd be racing today. I came along about the same time as Jackie Robinson, but I came into a sport that was far more dangerous. I can't say stock car racing was any more prejudiced than baseball, but you know, stock car racing was prejudiced. You look at that incident at Richmond just a couple of weeks ago. Dell Earnhardt hits Darrell Waltrip and NASCAR finds Earnhardt. I was wrecked I don't know how many times. My car tore all to pieces. NASCAR ain't said no word about it to this day. And I know I was wrecked because I was black. He recalled his own Atlanta debut in 1961. When they found out that I was black, them fans went crazy in the infield. There might have been big trouble that day had not Alf King, the granite-jawed manager of AIR at the time, stepped in. A group of whites in the infield cornered a small group of blacks. Knight, with a 2x4 and a 38, broke up the right. All Knight was was a real nice guy, said Scott. He helped me a lot. I had a lot of white friends. But just before the next Atlanta race, another official called me at 10 o'clock one night and asked me not to come. He said the Ku Klux Klan had been threatening to come and throw bottles and rocks onto the track if I raced. He was afraid somebody might get killed. I didn't go because he asked me so nice. 
But when a guy at a Birmingham track called and asked me not to come, that was during the time they were sticking dogs on black people. I went anyway. When I got to the track, the black caretaker kept saying, boy, there ain't going to let you race. After the race, Johnny Bruner, a NASCAR official, kept saying that I better hurry up and go for my own safety. From the outset, Wendell Scott had been willing to tread lightly in order to race. His love of cars had started in 1938 when he bought a Model T Ford for $15 and began to tinker with it. By 1939, he was Danville's most notorious taxi driver, the one who'd get you to your destination faster than you'd want to get there. During World War II, the Army sent him to mechanical school. After the war, married and with a young family, he was unable to regain his taxi license because I had so many speeding tickets and other violations. Then I got involved with the wrong crowd and began bootlegging. Charlotte, North Carolina was dry. I found out that I could buy whiskey for five, 55 cents a pint in the liquor stores here in Danville, haul it down to Charlotte and double my money, a dollar ten a pint. After that, I began hauling moonshine in those five-gallon cans. Caught hauling in 1948, he got off with a three-year probation sentence after his police record become become his ticket into stock car racing. In 1949, the dirt track here in Danville was in competition with the one at Greensboro. The promoter here wanted a black driver to increase local interest. Martin Rogers was the guy who got me to race, though a guy named Eddie Allgood takes the credit. Rogers went to the local police who had the records and asked them if they knew of any blacks who could really drive fast. They told him, you want somebody to drive a race car, go get Wendell Scott. But other local tracks wouldn't let me run at all at first. When he initially showed up to race, people didn't pay much attention to me because I'm so light-skinned. But I had some black guys working with me, and soon people put two and two together. He set off to tracks in northern Virginia and Maryland where he was accepted. His first year out, he arrived at a NASCAR-sanctioned race at Bowman Gray in Winston-Salem. I was turned down, and it wasn't until 1954 that I ran my first NASCAR race. Through the 50s, Scott won 127 races on the old Dixie Circuit of short tracks, won the Virginia State Championship in 1958, and in 1961, he decided to try the elite form of stock car racing, the NASCAR Grand National Circuit. Grand National Racing was supposed to have been a different class of drivers. They were supposed to have been more civilized. Some of them weren't. Deep down inside, they were worse. One Sunday, a driver wrecked me, and after the race, I was so angry, I went to him and threatened to kill him. He's still driving today. We're good friends now, and I'm not going to go name-calling. He knows who that he was. In 1973, prior to the Winston 500 at Talladega, Wendell Scott shook hands with Alabama Governor George Wallace. Well, he'd changed, Scott said. Minutes after the start of the race, there was a 21-car pileup. Scott suffered a broken pelvis, broken leg, and a torn open left arm that required 70 stitches. Worse to him, the best race car I ever had was demolished. I'd hawked everything I had to buy that car. After it got tore up, it took me nine years to pay off the note. That wreck, for all practical purposes, ended Scott's Grand National career. He ran one more race at Charlotte that October. In 1982, Wendell Scott's racing debts had at least been paid. I've got some bitterness, he said walking through his junkyard. 
He stood still among the briars, and his stilly eyes fixed on the carcass of a 1955 Cadillac, which he said was Dwight D. Eisenhower's presidential limousine. I won 128 races. 128 races. I was never kissed by a white race queen. One time at Charlotte, I received the Curtis Turner Achievement Award. They had a white girl there to shake my hand, and a black girl there to kiss me. I wonder if Willie T. Ribs ever wins a race, what the circumstances will be in that victory lane. I think it's still basically a white man's sport. Looks like they're trying to keep up, keep it a white man's sport. I think the company's responsible for it. A lot of sponsorship money going into stock car racing, but it's helping only whites. Crisco's helping Buddy Baker. I bet as many black people buy Crisco as whites, but they're not helping no blacks. Years ago, I tried to get Miller to help me. Now they're helping Bobby Allison. Black people are buying this merchandise, the same as whites, but whites are the only one reaping any of the benefits. In Atlanta, racing enthusiast Les Montgomery is trying to establish a Wendell Scott Racing Foundation. Last year, Scott and Montgomery ran an ad every week in a national publication, and we didn't get one cent in contributions. I wish Wendell Scott talking about Willie T. Ribs. I wish that it was me just now coming into. All right, Andy. I mean, I know that that uh, that was definitely a mouthful, but my God, what a what an article, what a story. He, you don't think about like in today's society, you don't think about what some of these people went through. And he's just got a really sad story, honestly. I mean, he he was up against it, and he didn't have anything to show for it when it was all said and done. Well, I mean, you got to figure that he was going. Granted, they were trailblazers like Jackie Robinson and all that going into sports where they had separate leagues and such. But he was going into the white southern nest, I guess you'd call it. And, I mean, he would have to wheel them in with foil barrels to have balls that big to be able to do that, even to have the guts to even show up and try to race, let alone race and race with some success. Yeah, I think a lot of people just thinks that this 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 black guy, for lack of a better word back then, because he was, that's what he called himself, uh, that he just showed up and wanted to race NASCAR and he never was any good. But you see that, he won 127 races. So it's not like the guy couldn't drive a car. It's not like one of these rich boys that has a daddy that made it and he thinks he wants to drive a race car. He could drive a car. He was, he was a very, very talented driver. And I dare say just from knowing that he won 127 races and he done a lot of that without much help at all. If he would have been white and had that same talent, he might have been one of the better drivers ever. You never know. I just it, it seems to me like a guy that can win that much that's already up against that much, he had to have a lot of raw talent. And you you gotta figure, I mean, I've seen some pictures of him and he says it itself in the article. He could have passed. Or what? If he, I mean, it would have been a stretch. I mean, don't get me wrong, but he could have passed. He says in there that he could have, but he brought people with him 
and he kind of give it away. And yeah. but he still he never backed down. No, it, it. And the only reason we're reading this article, it, it, I think that they were trying to tie the article into the Willie T. Ribs making his debut, and then that just got all messed up because Willie T. Ribs' car didn't arrive on time and they had all kinds of problems. And we sort of talked about Die Guard's problems uh, on the de- debut show. You know, Gary Nelson, or no, Robert Yates, just packed up his crap and went home. So Die Guard was in trouble, even though a lot of people didn't know that they was probably in that kind of trouble. So this whole article was probably set up for a good accompaniment piece to Willie T. Ribs making his NASCAR debut, and then that don't even happen. Yeah, because, I mean, like we discussed earlier, if if your engine builder leaves you, however many engines he built for you, after that, you're in big trouble. Because back then, this was an art form. It wasn't CNC and all that stuff. Yes. So, um, I just thought it was good to touch on that because I just happened to catch that article going through the notes. And and when I read it, I just, I sat there and thought, my God, we've got to bring this article a lot. This was a really, really good article that, um, Ed Hinton wrote for the Atlanta, uh, journal constitution. So now we will actually, uh, get into the race. We've got the motorcraft 500, This takes place on March the 16th from the Atlanta International Raceway. This was before it was the Atlanta Motor Speedway, and it had a little bit different configuration, kind of like Homestead is now. It doesn't have the tri-oval then. Atlanta, back until 96, 97, had this this old configuration, which did make for a lot of good races. this not maybe one of them, but we'll do that. We'll do our best to. It definitely had a last hundred miles that was thrilling, if nothing else. So we start off. Uh, well, if if the race isn't thrilling, we will make it thrilling. We will try our best, and we start off with a really cool intro. I I forget, you know. Now all the races come on, and it, it's kind of the same. I'm, I know they try to do different things, but. I think this Atlanta intro really gets you in the mindset of what the what the Atlanta race is all about. America's most intensely regional sport may be spoken in the soft drawl of South Georgia or the nasal twang of Western North Carolina or the backwater brogue of South Carolina. But wherever you place the accent, you must place it below the Mason-Dixon line. In its entire racing schedule, stock car racing ventures out of the southeast to visit only four locations. But those are just vacation trips. Stock car racing makes its home in the south because it was born there nearly 40 years ago. And even before there were races, there were races. Legend has it that men like Junior Johnson and Buck Baker made money driving false-bottom cars filled with moonshine whiskey on dark backwoods roads in the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee. When they emerged onto dirt tracks, to race with Lee Petty and Fireball Roberts, they were participating in the development of what now ranks as one of the region's three major sports. Only college football, mostly south and west of the Georgia line, and college basketball, mostly north and east of the Peach State, have provided real competition. Pro football, regarded by some as the nation's favorite sport, is no match for stock car racing in the marketplace. As Atlanta proved on November 3 of last year, the Falcons and the Redskins drew a crowd of about 40,000, A few miles away, nearly 70,000 bought tickets to see the Atlanta Journal 500. It isn't just the danger, though certainly that's part of the appeal. 
It's that Southerners are uniquely attractive to heated competition among men who are among the coolest customers in sports. And as long as that's the case, sports like baseball and football will be the meat and potatoes at the American Spectator's Buffet. But stock car racing, by tradition and by choice, is the grip. So stock car racing by tradition is the grit of stock of uh, of sports and baseball and football is the meat and potatoes. Andy, uh, that gets you in the mood for Atlanta though. That that twang playing in the background and talking about the race drawing more people than the NFL football game. It uh, gives you the perspective that NASCAR is a big deal in the South. Yeah, and you got to remember, in 86, in the South, there wasn't a whole lot of pro teams, period. I mean, you had, like, maybe the Braves, but as far as the NFL, till you hit Florida, there wasn't nothing else. But uh, racetracks were all over the place. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's interesting also in that, that they the way just the way he sets it up, it's – the one thing that I found interesting is basically he said people come to see the crashes and that's a debate that people will have from now until ever. And I will always argue that no matter what you say, you don't ever want to see anybody get hurt, but there are plenty of people that want to at least see cars spin out and hit the wall. It's just part of human nature. I'm sorry. I don't want to see nobody get hurt, but at the same time, when you go to Bristol or you go to Martinsville, you want to see some people beat and bang and get in the wall and be mad at each other. You may not want to see it when they're going 210 miles an hour at Talladega, but you want to see it every once in a while. Well, like you say, especially on the short tracks, because you want to see the beating and banging. You want to, the excitement is getting right to that edge without going over. And when they do go over, you know, it's like, well, we'll try again. <laughs> yep. So they set it up pretty good. And uh, I will apologize right off the bat here. If anybody wants to go back and watch this race, it's an interesting race. It's cool to follow along with us. That way you may see things that we don't and comment and tell us what you think. But this Andy, this may be a race that I can unequivocally say, and I don't even know if that's a word, may be the worst broadcasting I think I've ever heard in my entire life on any level for anything. It was just awful. I, I, the whole production was not, I mean, even by 86 standards, you watch the Richmond race and then you come to this one and you're, uh, let down disappointed in a way it's funny but at the same time it's not a very good presentation i don't it's it's a abc i don't think covered a lot of nascar races back then but they had a contract for certain races and it's one of those deals where you throw some guys in that's not really nascar guys and you get a ragtag bunch of people to try to do something that they're not used to doing and it uh, it turns out quite comical, if nothing else. I mean, I had a good time watching it at their expense, but it was really cringeworthy a few times. You're like, oh, good Lord, these guys are awful. Well, there's just certain things. That's like John Madden. You can listen to him do a football game, him and Pat Summer all, all day long. Put them in a NASCAR race, it wouldn't be right. Same thing yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. That's probably the perfect point. So, 
We um, we start this race. There are 42 drivers starting in the race. The purse is $486,000. Jim Lampley is one of the uh, protagonists here that's bringing us the action. And Sam Posey's with him. Andy, are they on a green screen or is this just a really weird camera? Because I, it seems like it's been done live, but I, for a minute, I swear I thought they was on a green screen. They had to be on a, there is no way this wasn't on a green screen because I was waiting on any minute for one of them to tell me where the low front was pushing the rain into the area. <laughs> Just thank God they wasn't wearing green. Hey, boy, wouldn't, wouldn't that have been even more disturbing? <laughs> Just a hand. To see a hand show up. A hand and a head, yes, and the hands show up in weird places during some of this. I don't know. Um, even without the green. <laughs> Even without the green. So, Dell Earnhardt's on the pole. Tim Richmond is starting alongside in second. We wave the green flag. Richmond Earnhardt drag race side by side through one and two. Earnhardt gets ahead through into turn three. And uh, Richmond falls all the way back to fourth place. Early in the race, these first few laps, you can see the draft and how it worked back then. Uh, cars trying to stay together, sucking up to each other, slingshotting. There wasn't none of this arrow tight bull crap that we have today. Uh, Morgan Shepard, Bill Elliott kind of stay with Earnhardt early in the race. Uh, 10 laps in, Earnhardt's pulled out to about a second and a half lead. Morgan Shepard, Bill Elliott, they, they run together for second. Uh, we learned that Tommy Ellis was disqualified after qualifying, but he's mowing his way through the field. And Sam Posey says it's kind of fun when you have to start at the back. Andy, do you think it's fun for these guys when they start at the back? That's like saying it's fun to walk blindfolded through a room full of Legos. I don't, it made no sense to me whatsoever. I'm sure you could talk to Tommy Ellis at that point in time and said, "Tommy, is this is this a good? Do you having a good time having to start dead last and pass all these people?" I doubt that he's going to be happy about that. So there's the first scratch your head ABC moment of the day. Uh, another five laps down, we're 15 laps into the race. Earnhardt pulls about another second on the field, and he's two and a half seconds ahead of Shepard, Elliott, and Tim Richmond, who are all kind of running right together. And we do have a pretty good battle early with those three. Richmond almost makes it three wide. They're both trying to get by Shepard. Richmond backs off. Bill Elliott finally does get by Shepard for second, and uh, Richmond stays in fourth. We get a ticker, shows 28 laps are down on the race. Earnhardt is laying down some really fast laps. He's already lapping the slower cars. We uh, get an interview with Ernie Elliott, and he says Bill's just riding around, filling the car out. No, uh, nothing wrong with the car, just uh, trying to get going here. Sam Posey talks about the fact that Jeff Bodine brought power steering into NASCAR, and I kind of forgot that, but he did. He brought power steering in and i know they probably thought oh look at this yankee bringing this crap that we don't need in here because he's too soft and in the very second these guys gets a hold of power steering and see what it does andy how fast do these guys uh, switch over to the power steering boxes uh, I, I don't even think you could time it in modern timing equivalencies because once they realized how, how good it did especially on the short tracks you know super speedways probably wasn't that big a deal but the short tracks I mean, 500 laps of cranking on the wheel, that had to help them out. 
Oh yeah, they they. I'm sure their arms and their 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 upper bodies appreciated the fact that they wasn't having to work quite as hard. So plus, you got to figure at this time they probably freed up a hand for them to have a cigarette too. So that's true. I mean, uh, we we definitely have some smokers in the field. Uh, Dick Trickle's not in the series yet, but he would definitely light them up under caution anytime he got the chance. We do get some good in-car camera shots. There's a rear bumper camera they show where you see Sterling Marlin just sliding through the turn behind Jeff Bodine. That that camera shot where you see the guy in the turn, you know they're going 170 miles an hour, leaning on the right rear, and you see his hands in the car jinking back and forth. And I don't know what it is about that camera shot back then that does it for me, but uh, you, you can't get much better than that camera shot of the rear glass where you see the guy really working the wheel behind you. Well, I think a lot of it's, uh, the cameras they've got now are, they've got that no motion Hollywood stuff going on where everything's nice and firm and nothing vibrates. But with the old style, you had the vibration of the car. It was in plus you've got to see what the other car is doing. It may, to me, it makes you feel like you're really there. Yeah. It almost gives you that, um, that, effect that you are there and i guess today with with no motion it's a real clear pretty picture but it doesn't give you the sense of the speed that you could see then so we got we're 40 laps down into the race sam posey says that the cars are like balancing an elephant on a roller coaster i have no idea what that means i don't know if he Uh, means i think at this point i think at this point he's just just desperate to say something to keep Lampley off of him. We'll talk about, we might talk about that a little more later. 40 laps down, everybody's spread out. Three of Earnhardt still in the lead. Bill Elliott's about three seconds behind. And then now we have Harry Gant has moved into third. Morgan Shepard fourth. Tim Richmond fifth. They're all kind of right together. And we do then go into an interview with Dale Earnhardt who talks about the uh, the crash at Richmond. I'm sorry it happened. I don't want to be involved in these kinds of things. And when you run up front and when you win a lot of races and when you're trying to win a race, you're going to be involved in controversies. If you run back in the pack, if somebody runs over you, who cares? But if you're trying to win the race and somebody runs over you, then obviously it creates a lot of attention. What happened at Rockingham is just a deal where I think Bill was trying to get a little bit of uh, uh, something to go in on Monday morning or Tuesday morning, whenever it was with. Uh, he didn't give me much room, and we did rub together, but it certainly wasn't like what happened at Richmond. As we watch what happened, it's clear that Earnhardt hits Waltrip from behind, causing both cars to spin into the wall. Earnhardt, it would seem, is the villain. Waltrip, the innocent victim. But to fully understand the incident, realize that it's a time-honored technique to tap your opponent in the bumper, making him slide harmlessly out of the way as you duck through on the inside. Any driver worth his salt does this routinely, especially on the slower and therefore safer tracks such as this one. Where Earnhardt went wrong, and here we see it again, was in hitting Waltrip so hard that both cars went out of control. And surely this wasn't what he had in mind. So to me, it suggests that Waltrip was up to something himself, slowing early for the turn in an effort to throw off Earnhardt's timing. Well, what happened up there was a mistake on my part. You know, we got fined for it. NASCAR says it was reckless intent. You know, I don't see it that way, and uh, it's just an argument between us and NASCAR. 
you know, they rule on it, uh, but yet they wouldn't rule on Daryl hitting us on, on the caution flag afterwards. So, you know, you got to take it. You signed up uh, to join NASCAR and signed up uh, to blank to run that race, and uh, you got to run under those rules. So uh, they're the governing body. you got to take what they give you and go on. Couple of things here. That was Earnhardt and Waltrip talking about Richmond. But when he, when the announcer's first talking about it, and he's like, "And here you see Earnhardt in his natural habitat." It's almost like a you're watching an Amer uh, Animal Planet discovery of a mating ritual of a rhinoceros. And here you see the Earnhardt in its natural habitat, taking Waltrip and pounding him into the wall. He gives him a couple of taps, and it was. I don't know. I just thought that was funny. It just, it almost come across as like, uh, like a jungle thing. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to well, entertain got, myself. Well, you got to figure even today, people, I mean, not from the South, think of the South as a whole different planet, but especially when you get into the rural areas with people like me, you know, it, it's a whole nother world and it, it fascinates them. I don't know. And then, then at the end of the interview, I think it's pretty telling. I like what Earnhardt said. He's he's not happy with NASCAR about the decision, but he said, you know, we sign up to race under NASCAR's rules and their regulations, and we know what we signed up for, and, you know, we, we got to go on about it. That's We uh, we race for NASCAR, and that's, that's the bottom line. So at the end of the day, uh, he understands that, even if he's not happy, he's not really got a whole lot of control here that this is NASCAR's ball and uh, they can tell him to go home if they want to. Yeah. yeah. And you know, that's a weird role reversal because uh, a lot of people think of Earnhardt in the later years when he had a lot of power in NASCAR. I mean, he was the one that they would go to if they, if other drivers, if they had a problem with NASCAR, they'd go to him because they knew he had power with them. But here, you know, he's, what, six years in, six, seven years in, he's still more or less a new driver. Yeah, it's he is the 1980 champion, but he is not the the ambassador of the sport. You, you still have Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, Kelly Yarborough that I'm sure everybody looked up to, and then eventually it does transition to Earnhardt, and then it transitions from Earnhardt to Jeff Gordon to Tony Stewart, and I'm not really sure – who the actual ambassador is today, but you get the point. It, it, Earnhardt did have a lot of stroke later on, but right then he kind of understood his place. He drives for NASCAR. He signed up to be a NASCAR driver and what they say goes. So we're back to the race and they, uh, they, they come back from a commercial. They talk about the wreck that, makes the, the wreck has made Waltrip more popular among fans. Uh, but he's running 14th in the race and he's well off the pace. Phil Parsons is in the 66 car. He has been black flagged in and out of the pits. And I've got a note and I just said, this race is really poor so far. <laughs> There's not a lot going on. I mean, they run this package of, uh, what was it? We're not even, we're 40 laps in and they ran that package of, Talking about Richmond, it's like, well, this race sucks, so let's talk about the race that didn't suck. Yeah, just remember, this is what could happen at any time. Stay tuned. Yeah, like, please, God, let anything happen here. We've got A.J. <laughs> Foyt in uh, Oldsmobile in the pits. 
Two tires, 18.9 seconds, and even they admit that that's pretty slow. And they, they kind of talk about A.J. Uh, putting more of his efforts into the NASCAR team and trying to take it a little more seriously. And A.J. never, in this era, he just never really got going in NASCAR uh, very much. He, he was still more of an IndyCar driver. Earnhardt is slow down the back stretching into the pits, and everybody's a little bit confused. Elliott comes into the pits a few laps later. He almost crashes with Benny Parsons, who's trying to get out of his pits. Um, Elliott gets by Tim Richmond coming out of the pits, which is they were they were drag racing out of the pits. That was pretty cool. Um, Elliott put a bold move on Tim Richmond on the apron coming out of the pits. And remember, back then, we'll talk about this every week. I'm sure no pit road speed limits, so they are literally drag racing out of the pits. And there's another thing, I know, which, you know, you know me, I noticed a lot of the mechanical crap, but watch the jack men on these pit stops. You know, nowadays they've got these, you know, ultra lightweight aluminum, two pumps and the car's up ready to have the tire took off. Back then, that guy pumped that sucker about eight times before he even got it halfway off the ground. Yeah, it was a much different era back then. So they, they try to get word in the pits um, on what happened to Earnhardt and if he ran out of gas. And at this time of the race, they say no, but the announcers actually do question that. Uh, Earnhardt's crew says he didn't run out of gas, but the announcers are not so sure. Sam Posey uh, is trying to use words bigger than my vocabulary. I do point that out. I, have, I can't even remember what he said, but he is uh, trying to speak eloquently to a, um audience of rednecks, which doesn't work real well. We go to no, because we think you're trying to insult us or calling us names. Yeah, we go to a commercial and then come back, and we're still in green flag pit stop cycles, uh, seventy three laps down, and now Ricky Rudd, Harry Gant, Tim Richmond, and Elliott are the top four after Earnhardt had his problems in the pits. They go back to a commercial, and f- when they come back, we are finally under caution. Rick Wilson has a small tussle with the wall. I like that line because uh, he did. He, it was a little brush of the wall, but NASCAR said, hey, that's it. We got we to gotta throw the yellow. This is not working for us today. Let's bunch them up. We got to do something. Uh, this is before we had uh, stage breaks. They, they, had to, they had to invent their own breaks whenever they could. Then we go to a very interesting segment that you may want to look up on the race. I don't understand the point of this exactly, except that they wanted to kill five minutes in the broadcast. We we have a, a skit with a guy named Honest Johnny, who's with Sam Posey and Sam Posey's grandmother. Grandma climbs into an $85,000 NASCAR. And she peels off in the car while honest Johnny talks to Sam about financing. Basically, I guess the whole moral to the story is they're trying to say how much these cars cost. And they use this as a way to have this guy swindle Sam Posey out of $85,000 and his grandma pills out in the car. Andy did what, what was going on with this segment? Who somebody was smoking something they shouldn't have been smoking in 86. The only thing I can figure out is somebody before this race went to a Southern wrestling show and saw how wild the grandmothers are there and decided, let's put her in a NASCAR. 
I don't know. They should have got bouncing Beulah brochures for that. Amen, brother. So we are now at lap 91, and the running order, apparently, is Tim Richmond, Benny Parsons, Kel Yarborough. Then we also have the number one car of Sterling Marlin, Harry Gant, Dell Earnhardt, and Jeff Bodine. The announcers now call Phil Parsons Benny's son, which is not accurate. And you can definitely tell these guys are not NASCAR announcers. Uh, there's Benny's and son. And if you can't tell by now, it's coming. <laughs> oh, good Lord. We do now figure out why Richmond was on a cane at, 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 at the Richmond Fairgrounds. He actually was hurt in the twin 125 at Daytona, and he had a bad neck and back from that crash. And here is Tim Richmond talking about that. Well, I came from sprint cars and super modifieds, Indianapolis cars, then to stock cars, and it was, uh, you know, it was an adjustment that I did think was inferior to uh, to actors, to a lot of people. It almost, you know, I, I don't want the people of my sport or our sport to take this wrong, but I, I did feel a little inferior or maybe a little embarrassed why i don't know okay that was my problem and not everybody else's and now it's just the other way you know i'm not better than anybody else but i darn sure do something that that's that's all right that 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 i feel is okay in in my book and i hope it's okay in everybody else's because driving a chevrolet with folgers coffee on the side of it and exxon motor oil uh, and those aren't plugs but that that's america you know that is um, you know and i'm an american racing in america uh you know, that is cool. That's 200 mile an hour knee, you know. So Tim Richmond talking about his inferiority complex, thinking that NASCAR or racing in general just was something to be ashamed of. My God, can you imagine that now? Like, just think of this now. Somebody saying, um, what do you do for a living? Well, uh, I, uh, I, I drive a NASCAR. They scream it from the highest rooftops. They blast everything out there. If you're in racing, everybody thinks you're cool. But even Tim Richmond, who was the coolest cat on the planet back then, he was he had an inferiority complex. Andy. Well, that just shows how how much different it was back then. Because back then, you know, open wheel racing, as far as the country as a whole, open wheel racing, Indy, people knew that NASCAR. Uh, it's a bunch of inbred hillbilly. I mean, that was the thinking that a lot of people had. And people like uh, Richmond, he opened up doors for a lot more to come in after. Yeah, and then at the end of that, he, you know, so I drive the uh, Folgers coffee, and and he said it's not a plug, Exxon, but that's America. That, you know, I'm an American. That's NASCAR. He was so good as a sponsor. He was a sponsor's dream even though he was a little wild, but otherwise he was a sponsor's dream. Yep. He knew how to th throw them plugs in there and talking about being an American and everybody loved them. Some Tim Richmond. I mean, I still love me some Tim oh, Richmond right now. Tell me you wasn't expecting to see a bald Eagle burst through the back wall and the American flag start waving, you know, in a layover across his face as it went off the air. Oh man. So, Definitely. Tim Richmond, just awesome. It's, it's like I said, that's why I picked 1986 
was because this is Tim Richmond's year, and I wanted to see what we could unpack with Tim Richmond here in this year. So we are now um, – they're trying to interview Cal Yarborough in the car, and they, they cannot communicate with him. Some things never change. Even with today's technology, a lot of times you, they don't get the guy that they're trying to interview in the car. And honestly, I don't see the – the big deal of interviewing drivers during the race, except I don't know if it's in 86, if it's this year or if it was another year, but there is going to be a race where they're interviewing Tim Richmond. And I know that we talk about him a lot, but this was so cool. It may not be in 86. It may have been 87 that they are interviewing Tim Richmond during a caution and they restart the race. And Tim Richmond is still talking to them as he is, pa- and he is like literally passing cars on the outside at, I think it's at Martinsville or North Wilkesboro. He is passing cars left and right, and he is so calm passing these cars while he's still talking. Now, that's pretty impressive. I, you talk to these guys when they're under caution and they act like they're agitated. He was talking to him while he was doing green flag live laps. Well, I mean, not to mention no names, but you got some of them now pull the Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here so I don't get fined. And here he is going through. Like I say, he's changing gears. He's got everything going, you know, and at the same time giving an interview. I mean, that the man was amazing. He just was. So we are now back to green flag racing. And, we're, no, we're still under yellow. Sorry. Uh, this is where this all goes completely to hell. We're under yellow because of a scoring issue. And NASCAR says that Tim Richmond, Benny Parsons, and Kel Yarborough are all a lap down and should be at the tail end of the lead lap. And they say Gant now should be in the lead. Now we get this. uh, This is a very, very persistent pit road interviewer who is trying to get in the middle of all this. And we catch this chaos. And I can't describe it. Just listen. Tim, that is correct, Jim. I am down here with Harry Hyde, who has been talking to this NASCAR official here for the last 10 minutes. What they're doing is they're going over every lap of the race, trying to find out where Tim Richmond was. They say they pitted too early. They came in before the the car actually went out. The yellow car, the yellow flag went out. They said Tim Richmond came in. What Harry Hyde is saying is that they came in the same time. They outraced number nine coming back out. They were the leader going in. They said they should be the leader coming out. They should not be penalized a lap. But while this confusion takes place and while NASCAR tries to work out who, in fact, is the official, and we are trying to find out word right now. NASCAR official is getting some word from upstairs. Harry Hyde, of course, anxiously waiting. He said he's never seen this in NASCAR racing. They went around the pace car. Which car, Harry? Jim Lampley. He is very, very confused. Let me try to get Harry down here. Harry! 
Perry, of course, trying to get Tim Richmond, trying to update him on the situation. Huh? It ain't right. Well, I know it ain't her, but it's... Perry, what did they tell you? What did they tell you? I, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, he's upset. Obviously, he says he, he doesn't agree with what NASCAR officials have said. He said he was the leader coming in. He did not pit too early, and he should be the leader going out. What NASCAR is saying, and it is going to be definitive, I understand here shortly, is that Tim Richmond will, in fact, be penalized a lap. Jim? Thank you. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> the... The pit road interviewer is trying to get in the middle of the official talking to Harry Hyde. And he is actually trying to interrupt the official and Harry Hyde to get to the bottom of the story. And honestly, knowing Harry Hyde, I am really surprised he didn't turn around and just hand him his ass right there to begin with. <laughs> and and we, we, oh, we still don't exactly. Oh, Andy, Andy, you could tell he was wanting to. He won't be so bad. Well, he he definitely kept his composure. I guess he knew that Folgers money was coming in, and he better not mess that up. But we we still don't exactly. I mean, this really is strange. This is this whole weird thing where when the caution comes out, people pit at a weird time, and then the, who the hell the pace car picks up? I don't know how they done this back then, and with any kind of consistency, uh, it is very confusing on on who gets picked up with what, but. I don't think that any of those guys really should have been a lap down. I, I think they pro he probably should have been in the lead or at least still somehow on the lead lap. I, I don't, I don't get it. The announcer does his best to, to spit reporter does his best to figure out what's going on to absolutely no avail. And Harry Hyde, when he finally gets his attention to talk to him, he just says, I don't know. He wasn't going to talk to him. And for a train wreck, that was something you couldn't watch, uh, look away from. Lord, no. But if that reporter would have got any closer, him and Harry Hyde would have been married in some cultures. <laughs> it's possible. Oh, so now we finally are back to green. And Tim Richmond is on the tail end of the lead lap, but he's at least in front of the leaders. Harry Gant is apparently the leader. He's the fourth car in line. And Dale Earnhardt's in second. Pretty quick off the restart, Earnhardt and Morgan Shepard overtake Gantt to go one and two. They're close together. Bodine and Richmond, they're trying to stay on the lead lap, and they're in front of the three. 114 laps into the race. It's now clouding up, and they say rain may be a factor, and this is before they had radars at the track, so all you could do is look up at the sky and say, well, it's getting cloudy. We don't know, but it looks like rain may be coming. See, this is where they needed his grandmother to tell him whether her knee was hurting. Yeah, we we need yeah we need we need Sam Posey's grandmother's stat. Half distance is an official race at this point in time. So those back then they're running to halfway, not to the second stage. The announcers are discussing the strategy if possible rain is coming, and now was if Harry Hyde wasn't enough, we get the other Harry. Harry Rainier. Harry Rainier, the club owner, the team owner, went upstairs. Harry is now with me. And Harry, what did they tell you upstairs at the official scores? The only explanation I can give you is what they gave me. When I went to ask NASCAR about putting us a lap down, all they could tell me was that we pitted too quick when the caution come out. We're sitting right there in our pit beside the caution car. If we pitted too quick, then we've been a lap down every time we've ever pitted this season then. 
but talking to Harry Hyde and your lap charters on their side, they charted every lap and they had Tim in the lead. That's exactly right. We were on the same lap with with the front cars. In fact, uh, we were probably running third at the time. I think the other two cars, the 25 and the uh, 55 car was in front of us. We were probably third at the time. Will there be a protest filed at the end of the race? Well, actually, we're going to have to go back and count after the race is over. But, yes, sir, I will find out the truth after the race is over. Okay, Harry, thanks for stopping by. Jim, that's the story down here on the Tim Richmond situation. I'm so confused. Now, <laughs> now we're talking to Harry Rainier, who the pit reporter has apparently no idea is not Tim Richmond. He just talked to, he just almost got whipped by Harry Hyde. And now he's talking to Harry Rainier, who is Kel Yarborough's car owner, but he's talking about Tim Richmond and I, I guess Harry Rainier just ignores it and He's talking about his situation with Kelly Yarborough, and these announcers don't have the first friggin' clue what's going on. The, the whole time I'm sitting here screaming, if you will look up about three inches, you will see a hat. What is on that hat? That is Kelly Yarborough's team. Just look up just a little bit. Oh, my God. Okay, so we have all this going on. Harry Hyde was pissed off. Harry Rainier was pissed off. And now we are back to the race to getting pissed on to get pissed on and we get an extended in-car shot from jeff bodine's car showing harry gant get by him the windshield of the of bodine's car is really really dirty you back then they didn't have the pill-offs so if the guy didn't get it under caution real good I don't see how these guys could see half the time. That's how good they are. They're just guessing. They know instinctively where how to where the turns are and when to lift because you can't see out of the most of the, his car. No, and, um, and if the sun ain't shining on the windshield, it ain't too bad. But you can tell when the sun hits that thing. Forget it. You ain't got a clue where you at. Yeah, Kyle Petty now crashes pretty hard. He backs into the turn two wall. The announcers say so far the race has been uneventful. And for the first time this entire race, I agree with something they've said. Richmond yes, does the get congregation his, said amen. Richmond gets his lap back, and he's back to the end of the lead lap cars. So we're on lap 134 now, and we get a restart. Dale Earnhardt, Harry Gant, Daryl Waltrip, Bill Elliott, Terry Labonte, and Richard Petty. One thing with all the way the cautions fall and people pit and they're out and then they pit, it, we keep getting jumbled up lineups, uh, every, different people at the front all the time. We go back to the race and we get a lot of green flag racing. We eventually get a pit report that on Morgan Shepard and the pit guys call the crew chief Jack Elder. ABC, everybody. Suitcase Jack Elder. We have a caution. We have a caution as apparently a guy named Doug Heverson has crashed. It's actually Doug Heveron, Andy, ABC, everybody. God almighty. Yes, again. <laughs> then we go to a shot of the green screen booth and Jim Lampley has some sort of a creepy half hug holding on to Sam Posey's looking at him 
he's gazing at him in a, a very forelonging way. I don't know what's going on in the booth. I, I don't judge. But uh, Jim Lampley is, is entirely too close to Sam Posey at this point in time. And I'm just telling Posey, just Posey, please, if you're in trouble, blink twice. That's <laughs> We need a signal. Oh, so Morgan Shepard, we learned during the course of all this, has a pet raccoon. Why, Who why hasn't not? had a pet raccoon? Why not? Well, of course. We do live in East Tennessee, and I'm sure you have, but... It just uh, yes, uh, I had one named Betsy and one named Ross. Andy, what I else? found them on the Fourth of July. <laughs> Appropriate names. Lap one ninety one. We have Dell Earnhardt, Bill Elliott, Morgan Shepard, Terry Labonte, and Richard Petty in the top five. Okay, so something I've not talked about all through the broadcast so far. We do have the NCAA basketball tournament going on. And you can tell that Jim Lampley is really excited to talk about that when he keeps seeing scores. He lights up like a Christmas tree. You can tell he just switches gears when he gets into the talking about the scores of the NCAA games because God knows he'd rather be anywhere else except the NASCAR race. We we do learn, uh, Andy. But what got me? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I was just sitting there thinking, yo, it keeps going back to David Robinson, but the way they're going on with the names, I'm waiting for him to say he's Smokey Robinson and he sings songs for a living. Oh, yeah, we, we do learn with uh, that Navy has upset Syracuse in the tournament and David Robinson's their all-star center. I wonder whatever, you know, if that guy never made it. Never heard of him. Never, never heard anything else from him. Harry Gant has a real at, rear axle issue. So does Sam Posey at this point in time. And he's lost a couple of laps in the pits. We f- get a restart, and Benny Parsons gets a jump on the restart. He puts himself on the tail end of the lead lap. Now we get Bill Elliott on the inside of Earnhardt, but Earnhardt slams the door. Morgan Shepard closes in on both of them. They They all close in on Benny Parsons. We get about 15 laps more down the 55, three and the nine are all together. The 12 into the pits, he's got some issues. He's hit the wall fairly hard. And we now have Bobby Wawak, which they pronounce Waywack, has stalled and the caution is out. 55 lap. ABC, everybody. ABC, everybody. Benny Parsons gets his lap back, and everybody goes into the pits. We've got up to lap 227 now, thank God. Morgan Shepard, Tim Richmond, Daryl Walter, Dell Earnhardt, and Bill Elliott are the top five. About a lap after the restart, we have a caution out again. Richard Petty has blown up. We get some cars into the pits, and we have Morgan Shepard out front. Uh, Rusty Wallace gets his lap back. Bobby Allison is trying to get his lap back also. The Dell Earnhardt car is now running down Morgan Shepard for the lead. And now we get an interview with Morgan Shepard's wife, and she's excited that Morgan's running really well. Earnhardt right behind Shepard, and he's really putting pressure on him. So we've kind of established that Earnhardt's definitely got a car to beat, and Morgan Shepard is strong here 
through the middle part of this race, he's definitely a contender. Oh, most definitely. And it, I don't know, these, this is why I like these throwback races is because when they go and interview somebody like Morgan Shepard's wife, she's got that jacket, the Jesus hairdo, where everything's just pooped out like a lion's mane. It, it, I don't know. It just brings back memories of Aquanet. Yeah, and she yeah, well, ozone layer be damned for her. <laughs> That's right, sir. We have Terry Labonte and Tim Richmond. They're almost to the leaders, and Bill Elliott pulls up to them. So we're finally getting some racing here, uh, three quarters of the way through the race, because you have Earnhardt and Shepard out front, and they're right together. And then you get Terry Labonte, Tim Richmond, and Bill Elliott all coming. So we've almost got a five-car race for the lead. Uh, Neil Bonnet has hit the wall pretty hard, and he's cracked a bone in his ankle. Uh, Neil, and we didn't even. He didn't no, even let's bring think about this for a second. Uh, well, let's let's think about this for a second. Now, how much has time changed when he goes in and he says they think I've cracked a bone in my ankle? I have to now go to the hospital to get an X-ray. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now they could dang near do that in the pits while they're sitting in the car. They have the technology, but back then they had to put him in a station wagon looked like and haul him to the hospital to see if he did in fact break it. Yeah. And he hits the wall hard enough to don't bring out a caution, but he breaks it, breaks his ankle. That's pretty hardcore. We get the 25 car now by the 44 and now Morgan Shepard and Dell Earnhardt, are trying to lap Rusty Wallace once again. I mean, this is a this is a knockdown dragout. Now we have had some bad racing. Granted, at least it's been entertaining. But now we're actually getting some good racing. Yeah, it's game on now. It's uh, ready for the intimidator. So during all this, we do get a uh, uh, an interview here where Tim Richmond talks about his his injury. The crash, it cost Rick Hendricks some money, um, but it, it's really, it's been more positive than it has negative. I'm still fighting it as far as physically, you know, I'm still not right. Uh, it's been over a month now, or about a month, and I'm still fighting the physical effects, but the mental effect has been a positive one on me. Uh, you know, I know, you know, it's not a crash I want to go through again or anyone close to it, but I went through it. I knew that it, it could happen, but I've, I'm still here. And, uh, you know, I'm just, it, it's like, you know, what's it like going 200 mile an hour? People ask you that a lot, but you can't explain it. You, I can't explain this crash or what it's like. And, you know, when you hit 200 mile an hour, it makes you feel like Gumby. I mean, just, you know, your brain's still there, but your body's, it, it's there, but it's not working anymore. So, um, you know, it's, it's been all right. The crash was fine. It's just, I just, physically hope i can get back as good i know i will but it's going to take a while to still get back where i was tim richmond talking about the crash and andy this this actually makes me think i don't want to speculate because you can have a, a wreck and and be affected from it for a while but i almost wonder if he does have the aids or the hiv and he's developing aids and it's in his system if you have a severe crash like that if it wouldn't take you a little longer to recover because your body's got some other issues that he don't even know about 
Well, yeah, because you take, I mean, it ain't, it ain't a toughness factor. It's a lot of people would have Rex equivalent to what he had, the same injury. But at this point in time, like I say, he's taken two and three times as long to fully get over it. He's still racing. He's still going out there doing his job, but it, it does. It's, it makes you wonder if that ain't having an effect on him. Yeah, I mean, it may not be yet. I, it could just be a coincidence. I just thought it was interesting because he's talking about a wreck from Daytona, and it's a month later, and I know it was a bad wreck, but it just seems like maybe he's taking a little longer to recuperate because his body's already starting to, to go downhill, and he just don't know it yet. Yeah, if it had been a broke bone or something, you know, been something major where you could see it visually, it'd be one thing. But just being, you know, injured and not hurt, it's it makes you wonder. Yeah, who, I don't know. We do have a crash out of turn four, and my God, guess who it is? It's Kurt Bryant, who has now crashed with Michael Waltrip, and Bryant is uh, he is shooting for the perfect score. He's crashed all four races so far. And Andy, watch the. Did you notice the leaders when they raced back to the line and Bryant's cars crashed? But did you see oh. this race back to the line? I was just hoping that Bryant wore his brown pants. God, uh, this is maybe. I can't remember when they implemented that rule. I know it was at New Hampshire and Dell Jarrett was sitting sideways and almost got to. Mollish. It was in the nine. It was from up in the nineties. Well, it was in the. It was at least in the late nineties, maybe early two thousands, when they when they changed the rule where you don't race back to the line. And honestly, if they'd have had a wreck like they could have had any at any moment before then, that rule probably would have went into effect much sooner. But the race to the line with the car crashed right in the middle of the, that was that was pretty uh, intense. Yes, I guarantee you he was puckered. Definitely. The 25 does, uh, Richmond passes Rusty Wallace to keep him a lap down. So they were really racing hard to uh, to stay out there. Lap 267, the order before the restarts, Dell Earnhardt, uh, Tim Richmond, Daryl Waltrip, Benny Parsons, Bill Elliott, Morgan Shepard. We have Rusty Wallace running the uh, Earnhardt, very hard on the restart. They're side by side. Earnhardt gets by him going into the turn. And now we have a big crash. And guess who it is? It's Kurt Bryant and Slick Johnson. And this time, Kurt Bryant is not going to continue because this time he's actually wrecked. And you got to love NASCAR for some of the driver names. I mean, the names themselves, you got Slick Johnson, Big Trickle, you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Harry Hyde, the, the names would write a book. Yes. We are now back to the booth. Uh, Jim Lampley once again takes the opportunity to put his arms around Sam Posey. And uh, I just, I want somebody to look at me someday like Lampley looks at Sam Posey. <laughs> it's just, it's the affection <laughs> that uh, will stand the it's, test of time. It's not affection, it's Stockholm Syndrome. He's in love with his captor. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know the Sam Posey was a. Never mind. Pit stops out. Caution for the 11 and the 9 are now the front two. The Morgan Shepard passes everybody and he gets to the lead. He goes outside of Jeff Bodine trying to lap him and he gets by him. We get Bill Elliott and Terry Labonte side by side for a second. There is good racing now. So 
if you ever want to watch this race and watch it for the entertainment factor, watch the whole race. If you want to watch it for the race, watch the last hundred laps, basically, because they actually do uh, pick it up and they start racing. They, they get another in-car camera, but this time I don't like it because there's a lot of guys racing for the lead, and we have a long in-car camera on Jeff Bodine's car, and uh, you can't really tell what's going on around him. That irritates me a little, but during this whole process, he loses the front end of the car and almost crashes Bill Elliott. The announcers don't even acknowledge it. They're probably watching the NCAA tournament at this time. Because they don't even talk about it. And there was almost a complete wipeout up front. Yeah, last week we had too many shots of the fans, and this week we had too long a shot inside the car. Yeah, and they literally, after this is all this is going on, there's a shot, and it's a wide shot. You only see it for a second, but I swear they are five wide. And I don't know what was going on back there, but they all made it because we didn't have a caution. We, uh, we keep going on the race. 47, Morgan Shepard, he's about a second and a half ahead of Bill Elliott, and he's got Rusty Wallace, who is in between those two. Since nothing else is going on, we go back to Morgan Shepard's wife, and she says if they hold on for 13 more laps, he gets $4,000. And that's something you don't ever, well, they don't, they don't even disclose the purses now, but you never, ever, ever hear them talk about the money or anything now. And you could tell, you could really tell that that was important to them. That lap money. She knew that if he led 13 more laps, he's going to get $4,000. And I guarantee you that was a big deal to them. Oh, definitely. And you got to remember, I mean, nowadays, most of them have guaranteed contracts for certain amounts. And I'm sure there's incentives, but, Back then, they were racing for the purse. They had, they needed the money. The driver got a certain percentage, and he wanted it. Yeah. I, I just thought that was real interesting. She knew exactly how many laps he needed to stay out front for that lap money. 286 down out of 328. Shepard still in the lead. We've got Bill Elliott, Tim Richmond, Terry Labonte, and Dell Earnhardt behind him. Uh, a few laps later, and Bill Elliott's almost caught him. But we go a few more laps, and Morgan Shepard, he's still hanging tough. He's holding off Elliott, but we do have the uh, 25 car of Richmond, also Labonte and Earnhardt closing in on the two leaders. They're only about a second and a half behind. We uh, go to commercial, come back, lap 299. Morgan Shepard's still barely holding off Elliott. And I know he, he must he was racing hard for that lap money. He's trying to win the race, but you also know – He's fighting the nine tooth and nail because he knows that lap money's coming up in another lap. Uh, then, all, then at this time, Kel Yarborough blows blows up his engine. Uh, the caution does not come out. The Shepard starts stretching the lead just a little bit. He's got about a half a second on Earnhardt. And we get a pit update that Kurt Bryant has been released from the medical center. Slick Johnson was still being examined. Something has happened to Tim Richmond, and he's off the pace. Uh, Sam Posey says that Bill Elliott is just playing the waiting game. He's convinced that Elliott's ready to pounce. We get an interview with Yarborough, who said he has an he had an oil leak that uh, took him out of the race. There are Twelve laps to go, and Morgan Shepard is about a half a second ahead of Elliott. Ten laps to go. Ken Schrader crashes on the backstretch. Uh, Michael Waltrip was also involved. 
And then we get, it's weird. Cause this is this, uh, this makes no sense with how they pitted <laughs> back then. The, they have a crash and then they just fly into the pits. So Bill Elliott goes into the pits, but Morgan Shepard's still on the track. Now, Elliot comes out of the pits and we're under caution. I don't even know how the pace car has picked up anything. I don't know who he's picked up, but Morgan Shepard's in the pits. I'm not sure how this works. Andy, I've been a fan my whole life and I don't have a clue how this works. Do you have any better inkling than I do? No, because I honestly thought that maybe the video had messed up because the nine goes into the pits, and I'm like, well, where's everybody else? Well, then here comes 47 into the pits. Okay, well, this makes more sense. And then here comes the nine back in the pits. And I'm, what in, I got twisted and turned around. I ain't got a clue what was going on. Yeah, the 47 back? Yeah, right. He's, he's pitted. Now he comes back into the pits. He changes four tires. He had just took gas. Then Elliot's back in the pits, and I just, I have no idea what in the blue hell is happening here. The announcers are saying that Elliot's going to have better tires. ABC, everybody. Yes, that extra half a lap under caution <laughs> is going to help him win this race. Exactly. I mean, Shepard has, um, they all, they both just took four <laughs> tires. But Bill Elliott does have a, a, a half a lap under caution, better tires. That's going to propel him to the win. Tim Richmond has stayed out. Didn't they interview Morgan, Morgan Shepard's wife is a, is a, is a mess because he's got a chance to win the race. <laughs> and this poor woman is being, she's going to have to get a restraining order against this pit reporter who has stayed with her entirely too much of this race. After he, after he dislodged himself from Harry Hyde, he latched on to poor Sonia Shepard. Well, obviously, he don't know that you can train raccoons into being attack animals. <laughs> he might find out. So, Tim Richmond does stay out. Um, they're in the background, oh, yeah, well, they're interviewing Morgan Shepard's wife. In the background, there's a guy that's standing in the background you can see of this shot where Morgan's wife is being interviewed. And somebody fires up a car. This guy jumps about... 12 feet into the air. Andy, did you catch that on the replay? Yes, I caught that. And he did not have his brown pants on. <laughs> no, he didn't. But he was definitely very surprised that this, uh, that the, the car fired up with him about two, two inches from it. But now, he had the reflexes of a small cat. <laughs> yes, he did. Now the, now more now, no, Tim Richmond. I'm so I'm, I'm really confused. Tim Richmond's now in the pits with the hood up. I don't even know how many laps there are to go. All I know is at this point, I want Sonya Shepard to be the announcer until the end of the race because of everybody that's talked during this entire race, I like her the best. So let's just keep her on the broadcast. She is the only one that made any sense whatsoever, and yet they were still talking about the Southern twang. And I'm like, well, she's still smarter than you two. Yeah, now she knows the lap money. She knows what. She knows how many laps are there are to go. I guarantee you that. And ABC doesn't even know how many laps there are to go, but they do know who's um, in the NIT tournament and the scores of thousands of basketball games happening at the same time. But they have no idea. Well, I don't know about that. Oh, I yeah. don't know about that. They screwed up the that. score That's on right. the, uh, what was it, Cleveland something? Yeah, Cleveland State upset somebody, and they, <laughs> ha they had the score backwards, and then they did correct. I forgot about that. Yeah, they can't even get that right. But David Robinson is going to be a great center one day. ABC is having some issues on this day. 
So t- apparently, Tim Richmond has throttle leakage. I don't believe a word the announcers say, though. He's probably blowing up <laughs> because anything the announcers say is inaccurate. The order of the race now, Morgan Shepard, Dell Earnhardt, Terry Labonte, third, Bill, uh, Darrell Walter, Bill Elliott. There's four laps to go, and we go green. And I will let these uh, these two fine announcers call the finish of the race because it was interesting. wisdom has been in the past given the slingshot technique and the aerodynamics of the sport that you're better off being second than first yeah but that doesn't work that way so much anymore no i i think it's better if you can lead uh and shepherd seems to every time it goes green he seems to get a little jump on the guys i just psychologically here's morgan shepherd who's never won one uh and here's dale Ur- Bernard, who's just like a smoking pistol of a man. Uh, you, you know, it, in a sense, it's the good guy versus not really the bad guy, but kind of a villain of some things. And I, you know, look at Earnhardt now. We're seeing it happen maybe even sooner than we thought it would. He seems to have a real good grip. The same grip that Three gave, laps to go. gave Earnhardt uh, the pole position. Labonte right. in third. Labonte in third. Don't count him out. He is a remarkably cool customer. Remember, Labonte got his very first win on this circuit back in 1980 when a three-car crash on the last lap of the Southern 500 put him ahead in the first place. That's Morgan Shepard's wife, Sandra Shepard. We've spoken to her several times, and she's now watching. When they come back around this time, there will be two laps to go. Earnhardt is all dialed in, it looks like to me, Sam, right there on Morgan Shepard's rear bumper. Yeah, but he's got to get by, and there's no reason at all for him to hold back, Jim. Uh, if he could get by, I think he'd be by. Uh, I got to feel this is going to be a real race to the end. It's not a clear-cut thing, although the two leaders are keeping that small margin ahead of the second, third, and fourth place, the third, fourth, and fifth place cars uh, who don't seem to have a shot at it at this stage. Although, look, they're right there. Labonte in third, Waltrip in fourth, and uh, still Bill Elliott unable to get out of fifth. All right, there's going to be one lap to go as of right now. So we are on the last lap. Morgan Shepard with the lead. Dale Earnhardt right in position. It is the classic confrontation of stock car racing. The only question, when will Earnhardt make his move, and can he get by? I don't believe he can slipstream by. I don't think he can draft by. I think he has to get him in the turn. They are going into the last turn. This is Earnhardt's last chance. As you can see, he can attack, but can he get by? Checkered flag is out and ready. Morgan Shepard's never seen one before in a super speedway race. Here is the checkered flag, and there is Morgan Shepard's first super speedway victory. And there is the celebration in Morgan Shepard's pit. And this was a quite unexpected accomplishment. So they bring it home, Andy. You go green with four laps to go, and they're trying to tell some sort of a story instead of just calling the friggin' race. It's like they're trying to weave some sort of intricate tapestry of melodious tones, and all they got to do is talk about Earnhardt is on Shepard. My God, my God, are we going to have another crash? Is this going to be a repeat of Richmond? Earnhardt all over Shepard's rear end. We don't get any of that. We get, well, he may slipstream. For the love of God, call the race. Just announce what you see. Yeah, if you're going to be that deadpan about it, just tell us what's happening with the action because there was 
I, I didn't sense no emotion, no uh, excitement. Just he, he's going to slipstream. He was he's moving up. I mean, and no talk of, I mean, no, build, they didn't even build it up good. Like, you know, Shepard, here he is, underfunded team, underdog. You know, one of the few people out here racing by himself, no sponsors, and here he is, and he's holding off one of the best. You know, but none of that. It was just there was a slipstream. It. And it's gone. Yeah, it could have been um, a um, or just a really cool call to the finish. And it's almost like they were watching the stupid NCAA game in the corner of their eye, just hope, just trying to get this over with so we can, you know, you know, watch the NCAA game. I don't know. Honestly, with as much as I've cracked on ABC, this is the most glaring actual issue. If you can't be that excited. With four laps to go, when you, like you said, you've got a guy that's underfunded, don't have a sponsor. What what a story. His wife has been a wreck. That what it means to them to win this race. And you're holding off the guy that clearly just destroyed Waltrip at the end of the Richmond race. And you've got this built-in story, and, and Earnhardt is literally inches off his bumper. If Ken Squire and Chris Economaki was calling the end of that race, oh. we'd have had a hell of a call. Oh, oh, you know it, because they would bring up the history of it. Oh, you know, he put he put Walker up into the wall to try to win the race. What will happen here? He's inches off his back bumper. He's setting him up for a minute. You know, there would be something going on. I don't know. I, and it... I've done, we've done broadcasting. We know how it is. It's, it's not easy, but at the same time, when you have it fall into your lap where you've got a finish like this and you trip over it that bad and I, you've, you can't, you don't need to do any more NASCAR races. I, I don't know if we'll get Lampley and, and Posey again, but I hope to God not. Me too. Cause I don't need no pocket pull of Posey. <laughs> No. Okay. Oh, so let's actually discuss the end though. Besides the broadcasting, the actual race. Um, here's a question I want to pose to you. And I, in our show notes, I didn't even put anything in the show notes cause I just wanted to hit you with this, uh, live wire. Do you think that Del Earnhardt did not move Morgan Shepard because of what happened at Richmond? Andy. No, I think he didn't move him because Earnhardt was one of those, especially time if you to use his quote, if you rattled his cage, he was going to rattle yours back twice as hard. From everything I saw during the race, Shepard raced him pretty clean. And honestly, I got to give Shepard some credit because there's that last lap. Earnhardt was using the draft to get right up on him, and he moves. Oh yeah, I, 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 for honestly, you know, he moved up the track to take the draft off of him. Oh yeah, in, in full disclosure, just to be completely, perfectly honest, as I'm watching this race, I have no idea who won. I couldn't remember. I really didn't know that Shepard won the race. For some reason, I thought Bill Elliott won that race. Um, I can't. I guess because he won both of them in '85. I did not know that Morgan Shepard won that race. So I'm watching it as a fan. In 2019, going, come on, Morgan, hold him off, hold him off. I want the underdog to win, and he did. It was, it was a cool finish. It was a really, really good finish to a 
spectacularly poor race. Yes, and like I say, Earnhardt, he had the chance to, he got up there close, and I got to give Shepard credit on that one. I believe he, he won the race by driving it. He didn't win because, you know, Earnhardt didn't want to wreck him. He won the race no. because he was the better driver that day. Yeah, and he had been up front the whole race. It's not like he fell into it backwards. He was even, if they wouldn't have had the caution, he was pulling away from Elliot, I think there with 10 or 12 laps to go. I, I think Elliot had used up all he had. I really think Shepard had it in the bag, and then when that caution came out, it just, who knew what was going to happen. So Now, on to the better part. Um, the better part. Uh, we will go to the victory yes. lane. Are we going to the victory lane interview? Let's, let's hit the victory lane interview right now. In Shepard's car. All right, I'm in Morgan's car. And Morgan, first of all, congratulations. You've won the uh, the national. Now you come out, you've got the super speedway. Well, I tell you, it's been a long time coming. I tell you, I just can't hardly talk. I like to thank God. Thank Jack, baby, for giving me the opportunity. And Jake Elder for being such a good chassis man. Morgan, if you can take your helmet off, I want to ask you, first of all, how many times, and of course you're working with a crew which is relatively new, you came in for a critical pit stop down the wire there, you changed all four tires, everything else, they stuck with you. Okay. Morgan, your feelings right now as you sit in this car with your first Speedway win. I tell you, this is just great, you know. I couldn't believe it's going to happen. We worked all day there. Uh, the car either it was too loose or either it, it pushed. And uh, Jake and I talked on the radio about what to do. And we finally got our tire staggered and, and got everything right. And the car was hooked up at the end. You know, you just can't beat these Buicks. All the years that you've been on these tracks, did you ever think this day would come? Well, I knew it wouldn't if somebody didn't give me a chance. And I'd like to thank Jack Baby for that. Of course, Jack, Jack's been with you all the way through, and what about a sponsor now? What does this do uh, as far as you're concerned there? Well, this team needs a sponsor. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we're on a limited schedule, and uh, uh, maybe if we get a sponsor, then we could run them all. When did you know you had this race? What was the key element in your mind? Hey, you, I didn't know I had it until I seen a checker flag. With, with Earnhardt sitting on your rearview mirror, what was, what was going through your mind? Well, I knew Earnhardt was tough, but uh, our car was working well, and I knew I could hold the bottom, and I knew it was going to be a knockdown drag out. But uh, fortunately, uh, Ducky Newman them does the engine, and uh, we had a good engine, you know, good Buick. What can I say? Morgan, one of the things that I think is a key is the yellow flag goes up. You don't even come in, which was a whale of a gamble. Why was that? Well, uh, we had changed left side tires. Uh, that time and uh the car was working well and so uh, i told him let's just stay uh like we was congratulations to you and sanjun good luck in the future thank you okay jim lampley and sam posey back up to you okay so we had the uh, victory lane interview there with morgan shepherd and uh, all the thing abc this entire race couldn't do anything right and they couldn't even interview poor morgan and victory laner right? the emotion man he that was so cool to listen to he was tore up. I was tore up for him watching it. I'll just be honest. I thought, my God, he was 
the, the raw emotion and the announcer just wouldn't leave. He just wouldn't shut up. He let the guy enjoy the win. I mean, I get it. You've got to interview him, but Lord God, let's not have a, a 10 minute shoot interview at the end of the race. Never in my life have I ever wanted to find a DeLorean, go back to 86 and jerk a knot in somebody's ass. Yeah. Like, dude, ask him a simple question. How you feel about the race? And let him go with it. That right there was captivating television if he'd have just shut his mouth. Yeah, well, I mean, let him see his wife and his crew and be happy and all that. And, and I don't know what he was trying to pull out of him. Like, uh, yeah, well, how about that Earnhardt? He's, he's good, huh? Shut up. Let the, let the, we get it. We get it. Earnhardt's great. We, we, I think what they was trying to say is, oh, we, uh, oh, I guess, uh, they wanted Morgan to be like, well, I, uh, I, I thought Earnhardt might, uh, might turn me there. I was scared. That's, I don't know what they was wanting him to say, but apparently that was the gist of what they probably was trying to get out of him. Cause I mean, honestly, and it, this is not a knock toward him. Cause even by today's standard, it's a lot of money, but if, the $4,000 in lap money had her that nervous and excited. Show her emotion when he wins the race. Yeah. My God, people, this ain't rocket science. No, it was really cool. It was good. I mean, the uh, Shepard's emotion was what was good at it. He was just, he was so genuine. I, I never was a, I wasn't a, I didn't dislike Morgan Shepard, but I wasn't like a real big Morgan Shepard fan. I'm a Morgan Shepard fan now. Now, you know, yeah. he's still semi-halfway active. I know he he makes an Xfinity. He tries to make his Xfinity starts as many as he can, but I am full board Morgan Shepard now. He uh, He's just a, uh, a genuine guy. You could tell that he was, he, he was, you know, this is still during the tough guy era. He left the glass, I mean, left the goggles and stuff on because he knew that he was fixing to burst out in tears with happiness and they didn't let that show. They kept asking him stupid questions. Oh yeah. So we do get the, uh, to the end of the race there. Uh, let's go over the point standings real quick after this race. And then we'll uh, go into the post race wrap. Uh, Daryl Waltrip is the points leader after this race with 655. Terry Labonte second at 643. Dale Earnhardt third at 628. Jeff Bodine has 574. Rusty Wallace fifth in the points, 550. Bill Elliott 535. Kyle Petty 509. Lake Speed 482. Bobby Hillen Jr. 476. And Tim Richmond in 10th with uh, 471 points. So we will go into our post-race wrap-up. Andy, I can't imagine it would be anybody else, but we'll just double-check and make sure. My driver of the race is Morgan Shepard for obvious reasons. I would venture to guess you would not stray off of that path. No, I, like I said, I'm the biggest Earnhardt mark you'll ever see, but no, on this race, Shepard, I definitely have my vote. Yeah. Uh, critical moment of the race. What uh, what did you think was the biggest moment of the of the actual race? The the biggest one I saw was probably at, like I say the last few laps when Earnhardt would get on his bumper, he would slide up the track a little bit and take the draft off, and you'd see Earnhardt drop back because he, he you know he is like he's hitting a wall of air, and so I, I, I'm ninety nine percent he was sure he was doing that on purpose, but. It did, you know, if he was doing it on purpose, that was great driving. 
Yeah, it was a it was a definitely a good show. My critical moment would have been that that late race caution, which caused all of that bunch up there toward the end. Uh, what was the most surprising thing about the race that you saw? Probably the fact I was hoping after they was talking about the pack raccoons that they would actually show them there at the track, but it didn't happen. So I I was surprised that it didn't. I was uh, I was surprised that Shepard was able to hold hold his own with that underfunded car and uh, actually win the race. Uh, Goody's Headache Powder Award, Andy Waddell. Who do you have? <laughs> it had to be Bonnet. I mean, my lord, man. Yeah. You can't even tell him whether he broke a bone and then he has to take a ride in the car. You ain't got an ambulance or nothing to take him to the hospital. It's crazy. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, now, here is uh, the most interesting part of the post-race wrap-up. Andy, what's uh, – I have don't have any idea where you're going to go with this. What was your post-race rating on the 0 to 100 scale? 65. I'm sorry. As far as looking back on it with nostalgia, as far as it being funny for being awful, it, you know, the racing, it, the racing wasn't that good till you got to the very end. I mean, they, they did save it a little bit that the last few, say 20 laps, but overall it, it just wasn't as good a race. Yeah. I gave it a 72 and probably being a little generous. I, the only reason I gave it a little higher was, there were moments in the race where they were pretty close to each other. They had a few brief moments of good racing with a lot of bad racing around it. What was your entertainment factor, though, on the 0 to 100 scale? Now, as far as entertainment, I mean, it was 85 if nothing else, but the the sheer hilarity of the host or the announcers trying to do their job and the shepherds, I mean, come on, that's just heart. I mean, that's heartwarming. You got it. You got to love that. Yeah, I mean, we should make a Hallmark movie out of the nineteen eighty six, um, nineteen eighty six race. Oh, uh, my my entertainment factor there was eighty four, so I was close to Andy. One thing I thought was interesting, I actually did not realize that was not Shepherd's first win in Winston Cup racing. Did you know that? No, I didn't because the way they was talking, it was like it was his first uh, win. But I was like you. I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, I was trying to see, you know, if they had anything. Honestly, I was curious about the pet raccoons and see if they had any more information on it <laughs> when I found out it wasn't his first win. Yeah, he, uh, and here's a real interesting fact that will tie a lot of things together. His first win in 1981 at Martinsville came driving the Cliff Stewart car. Cliff Stewart was the car owner uh, the previous year in 1985 uh, for Rusty Wallace before he moved over to the 27 car. Cliff Stewart was the owner of Kurt Bright's car. This was the last race Cliff Stewart was a car owner ever. Kurt Bright wrecks four cars in four races and Cliff Stewart quits the sport. So I thought that was a little... <laughs> Interesting side trivia mm. note that Shepard wins his first ever race driving for Cliff Stewart uh, a few years prior. Then this race turns out to be Cliff Stewart's last race ever in NASCAR. Well, yeah, when some, I mean, you got to figure how many cars did he probably have in the garage? You you take out four at that time, he probably out of the frames. 
Yeah, I, I can't imagine they would have more than just a few cars at a time back then. Uh, if that, I'm sure some of the guys was running the same car week to week. So, yeah, I just thought that was a little interesting side note to throw in there. Um, plugs for the show. Definitely go to our Facebook group that we are trying to grow, Racing Through Time. Tell us what you think about the shows. If you've got comments on the races, uh, let it, leave them in there. We can read them on the air. You can email us at racingthroughtimeproject at gmail.com. So all lowercase, all spelled out, racingthroughtimeproject at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at OPRWord. And for all your motorsports news and information, go to onpitroad.com and follow them on Twitter at, at onpitroad. So as we close up this race, uh, housekeeping next week, next the next event hopefully will bring a little more excitement. Andy, do you know what the next race on the slate is? Not a clue. Fill me in. We're going to Bristol, baby. Next week for the 1986 running. Of, <laughs> yeah, the spring race at Bristol. And it'll be a track that looks nothing like it does today, but uh, still in the same location, still right up the road from me and Andy. A lot of nostalgia there. This is before it was all stands all the way around. And it wasn't the concrete jungle back then. We had front stretch stands and back stretch stands and, People sat in the grass and uh, camped out uh, in the turns back then. You, it would be fun to watch people roll down the hills when they'd get a little too tipsy. Oh, I thought you, I thought you was going to talk about it being empty. Oh no, no, no! It wasn't empty. It was we. Yeah, there was plenty of people. It's just uh, it wasn't filled up all the way around because there wasn't as many seats. If uh, I, I guarantee, you if they'd had hundred thousand seats, then they'd have figured out a way to fill it up even in in the eighties because Bristol was a uh, it should be an interesting race. I, I honestly have no idea what happens in this race. I may have went to this race. Um, when I get to watching it, I'll know for sure. I've got some pictures of a Bristol race from 85 or 86 here at the house. So this might have been a race I actually went to. I'll, I'll know when we uh, when we go to make the notes and record the show later this week. So closing thoughts, Andy, on uh, this Atlanta debacle. Like I said, if nothing else, go back and watch the last 15 laps and watch Morgan Shepard and Victory Lane. It's well worth it. Yeah, the the this is a uh, this is not a race that I would tell people just to go out of their way to watch the whole thing unless you like watching train wrecks. And if you like that kind of thing, then this is something you probably want to take take a gander at because uh, if if you ever go to broadcasting school and you want to learn what not to do as a NASCAR announcer, this would be a good race to watch because they don't know the driver's names. They seem uninterested at the last four laps of the race. It's just, it's really bizarre. Very. All right, Andy, any more closing thoughts before we wrap this episode up? No, that's it. I'm just, I'm just wondering how many raccoons he had in his lifetime. I don't know. Maybe we try need to hit Morgan up, see if he's got the old Twitter and see if, uh, he's still, uh, got some, some raccoons. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he's got some sort of pets out there. I'm not sure if he still keeps up with pet raccoons or not. So for Andy Waddell, I am Ricky Wittenberg and we have another racing through time in the books.